Let's open our Bibles this morning to Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1. Let me make a three-minute review of what we've covered in the last 20, 40, thousand sermons, however long it's been, that we've been studying the book of Hebrews. It's been a while. I have loved, personally, this study of this book from the first word of the first verse of the first chapter to the last word of the last verse of the twelfth chapter. It begins with God and ends with fire. Our God is a consuming fire. And it began with God as Paul compared four believing Jews. The great superiority of the gospel of the New Testament as compared to Moses' religion. Now, Moses' religion was God's religion. God ordained it. God established it. God was worshipped by it. The Levitical priesthood was God's priesthood. But when Jesus Christ came, He did it all away, introduced a new form of religion over a 40-year time period called the time of Reformation in Hebrews 9 and verse 10. And Paul takes this book, to try to encourage these believing Jews to hold their gospel profession steadfast. They were being persecuted. They were in bonds. We're going to see that before we get through the first three verses of Hebrews 13 this morning. They were in jail for the gospel's sake. They had a great temptation to leave the gospel of Christ and to go back to Judaism. Most of the nation had stayed in the religion of the Jews and had not followed the Lord Jesus Christ. Most of the nation was guilty in God's mind of having crucified the Lord of glory. Paul makes the grand comparison in 12 chapters of the differences between the two systems of religion. In chapter 1, he makes a comparison between a religion based on prophets, verse 1, God spoke to the fathers by the prophets, the New Testament, God spoke to His people by His Son. Taking up at verse 4 and running through the end of chapter 1, God compares the fact that the Old Testament was based in the ministry of angels. Remember on Mount Sinai, it was angels that came down and gave the law. The New Testament, God sent His Son down from heaven to give the gospel. Chapter 2 takes up with the same theme and compares the Son of God with angels. Jesus Christ being God's Son, being far superior to any angel. And thus, the new covenant must be better than the old, and you believing Hebrews, don't go back. Chapter 3, the Apostle Paul compares Jesus Christ to Moses. Now Moses was a faithful man in all his house, we're told in verse 2, but Jesus Christ is not only faithful in his house, Jesus Christ was faithful over his house. Because Jesus Christ built the house so he's greater than Moses the rest of chapter 3 from verse 7 down through verse 11 of chapter 4 draws that great illustration from the generation in the wilderness when they stood before Canaan's promised land and refused to take it God offered them a land flowing with milk and honey they because they did not believe his promises thought the giants there too great and refused to take it And Paul is saying, you New Testament Hebrews stand in the same situation. If you reject the gospel that God is offering you, you will also be rejected 
from receiving His blessings of the New Testament. Chapter 4 compares the priesthood of Jesus, the rest of chapter 4 compares the priesthood of Jesus Christ with the Levitical priesthood. Verse 15, For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. Jesus Christ was tempted in all points like as we are. He can be a most compassionate high priest. Chapter 5 makes the same comparison further, that Jesus Christ is a better priest than Aaron ever dreamed of being. Therefore, you Jews, you ought not to want to go back to Aaron's priesthood. You want, you must want the priesthood of Christ if you're wise. Chapter 6, he gives the severe warning of letting those things of the gospel slip and falling away from them and bringing upon themselves irremediable judgment. Chapter 7, he deals at length with comparing the priesthood of Christ with the priesthood of Melchizedek and that of Levi. Chapter 8, he compares the two covenants. One covenant didn't work. Verse 7, for if that first covenant had been faultless, then should no place have been sought for the second. You Hebrews, if God brought in a new covenant, and remember Hebrews, He promised He was going to bring in a new covenant in your own scriptures. Jeremiah chapter 31. If in your own scriptures He said He was in need of a new covenant, then obviously the first covenant must have had some problems with it. Now that should convince a Hebrew to look to the new covenant. He did that in chapter 8. In chapter 9, he shows the great superiority of Christ's blood to the blood of bulls and of goats and elaborates on the fact that the blood of the New Testament is far superior to all the blood of the Old Testament. Yes, King Solomon might have killed 120,000 sheep on one day and sacrificed them as a burnt offering to God, but all their blood couldn't compare to the blood of Christ. In chapter 10, he makes a comparison between the fact that Christ made his offering one time. The priests under Moses made their offerings every day. They had to make their offerings over and over and over again because they never took away sin. But the sacrifice of Christ perfected us forever. Chapter 11, we have an ex the illustrative examples given of all those great men of faith under the Old Covenant. And in the first part of chapter 12, we're told that since we've got such a cloud of witnesses, let us make sure we run our race well, exhorting the Hebrews to diligence in holding fast their profession of faith. And then we have warnings, lest any man be like Esau, in verses 15 through 17, who for present gratification lost permanent blessings. And if these Hebrews went back against the gospel, back into Judaism, they would lose the blessing of the gospel. And then Paul concludes by saying, God has shaken the heaven and the earth in verses 26 and 27, and the Old Testament has been shaken away so that what is left is permanent. And what is left? But the kingdom of the New Testament of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he warns these Hebrews as he concludes his great comparison that they better have grace in verse 28 whereby we may serve God acceptably 
with reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. Now the Hebrews knew that he was a consuming fire because God had burned his enemies many times in the Old Testament. But he warns them here that if they didn't take advantage of the gospel, the New Testament preaching of Paul and the other apostles, that God was still a consuming fire. For our God is a consuming fire even today. He has not changed. And if you neglect or turn away from what He's given us in the New Testament, He will judge us severely for it. Now from chapter 1, verse 1, all the way to chapter 12 and verse 29, we have this great theological comparison between the two systems of religion. It's a theological dissertation that the gospel is better than Moses' law. And chapter 13 and verse 1 totally changes Paul's method, Paul's purpose, Paul's goal as he brings to bear now some miscellaneous practical duties that are the responsibility of God's people. The Bible will set forth what God has done for us and the superiority of the covenants in theological ways. As we look at the doctrine of God, the doctrine of salvation, but once that foundation has been laid, we then are brought to chapters where we have various duties set forth for us that it is now our duty to do these things. And from saying, our God is a consuming fire, he then says in the next verse, let brotherly love continue. I want to show you again why in my ministry I want to emphasize the practical. Look at Romans chapter 12. I've played this game with you before, but I want to do it again for you to see how the Apostle Paul persuaded men. If it was good enough for Paul, for some reason I think it's good enough for me. In Romans chapter 1 through 11, Paul deals with the doctrine of God, the doctrine of salvation, all the theological ramifications of salvation, election, total depravity, Christ's atonement, redemption, how that God, the sacrifice of Christ has made us free from the legal demands of the law, the resurrection, being dead with Christ, the Jews and how they were to be saved with the sacrifice of Christ also, and so forth. Dealing from a theological standpoint with the conceptual knowledge of God and what He has done for us. And he ends in verse 36 of chapter 11. Romans 11:36. I mean, this is Paul just finishing up an 11 chapter systematic theology for of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever amen that is the end of the doctrinal dealings of with paul using my distinction of doctrinal and practical because then immediately in verse 1 of chapter 12 he says i beseech you therefore Therefore, which means because of what I have just taught you in 11 chapters, I now beseech you 
by the mercies of God that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice. I do not want to be guilty of fostering a religion in this church where we emphasize Romans chapter 1 through 11. I will de-emphasize Romans chapters 1 through 11 and emphasize Romans chapter 12 through 16 because Romans chapter 1 through 11 left to themselves or emphasized result in a fatalistic dead religion. You preach to me every Sunday of the year or 40 Sundays of the year or 20 Sundays of the year. Romans 1 through 11 about what God has done for me I'll sit back in my chair, relax, and smile and say, Amen. Isn't it nice what God's done for us? Why, He elected us before the foundation of the world, wrote our names in the book of life, Christ came to die for us, the Spirit's regenerated us, and we have the hope of eternal glory waiting for us. Isn't that wonderful? Let's go home now and watch Sunday afternoon football. I want to take those 11 chapters, and once you know them, work off of that knowledge to beseech you to give your bodies a living sacrifice to God. I beseech you, therefore. Romans chapters 12 through 16 are the conclusion of what the doctrine of grace ought to teach us. The conclusion is always more important than the premises leading to it. The conclusion is why God has given us His Word. The Bible tells us in Deuteronomy 29, 29, the revealed things belong unto us and to our children that we may do all the words of this law. And I'm going to emphasize that difference. Now, Paul took 12 chapters in Hebrews and he left one chapter for the duties. And he just summarizes the duties. He doesn't elaborate on them, but we're going to elaborate. Look at Ephesians to see the same example. Ephesians, you know how excited I was in chapter 1. You remember how excited I was in chapter 2. I was excited in 7. I was excited last Sunday in chapter 12. But chapter 13 is where it's at. How many of you didn't know before I even started that the new covenant's better than the old? Anybody here didn't know that before I preached a thousand messages in the first 12 chapters of Hebrews? You all knew that. So we reviewed it. But what counts? Is your religion one where you sit at home and say, I know the new covenant's better than the old covenant? Well, bless your heart. What kind of a religion is that? He's going to give you some religion in chapter 13. Pure religion is doing. It's not sitting around thinking and glorying in what God has done. It's that knowledge resulting in some action. And I'm going to put the emphasis of my ministry on that action. Because I'm going to take what Paul said to another minister when he said that the grace of God teaches us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we ought to live soberly and righteously and godly in this present world. I'm going to make sure the grace you hear in this church pushes you to obedience, hopefully, by the grace of God. Look at Ephesians chapter 3. You know what Ephesians chapter 1 is about? God predestinated us to be saints. 
God predestinated us to an eternal inheritance. Verse 5 and verse 11. Look at chapter 2. God has quickened us by His Holy Spirit into life in Christ Jesus. Verses 1 through 10. Chapter 3 describes the wisdom of God of incorporating Jews and Gentiles into one body. And then Paul comes down to verse 21. And again, he closes off the first part of the book. Unto Him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. That is an end of reminding you Ephesians of what God did for us. And he says in verse 1 of chapter 4, I, therefore, what's, what's it there for? It's there because he is appealing to what God has done in three chapters ought to motivate us to do what's in the next three chapters. Let us not have a religion, brethren, that glories in the first three chapters of Ephesians. And you know we have had that tendency in time past. Oh, to love Ephesians 1. Love Ephesians 1. Want to tell everyone about Ephesians 1. Let's love Ephesians 4. Let's love Ephesians 5. What I'm preaching on the evening services, husbands, love your wives. Now that gets close to home, doesn't it? That's something you've got to do every day. Why, you don't have to do much with predestination every day. God did it for you 6,000 plus years ago. I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that ye walk worthy. My ministry will be based on walking, not on sitting. Those churches, those ministers, those members who glory in what God has done for them to the exclusion or the de-emphasis of walking don't belong here. They don't belong matched up with the Apostle Paul. Paul always turned his conclusion to the walk. To the walk. So let us walk to Hebrews 13 and verse 1. You know, let your fingers do the walking. Back to Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 1. And let us look at how Paul, after this great theological comparison, then brings it to bear upon us with some practical instruction. I had thought early when I began this book that I could cover a chapter a week. That went by the wayside a few weeks into the book. Then it deteriorated from that. Some chapters we've spent four weeks on them. I don't know how long Hebrews 13 is going to take, but we're going to take our time with the first theme. And the first theme covers the first three verses. Let brotherly love continue. Be not forgetful to entertain strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember them that are in bonds, as bound with them, and them which suffer adversity, as being yourselves also in the body. I can see that this morning and the study I've made and the, and the preaching I've made to you in time past is going to require us to limit our attention this morning to these first three verses. Let brotherly love continue. When it comes to the walk of a child of God, when it comes to how they should live and what they should do and what they're responsible for, 
before God, the first and foremost requirement that God gives us is love. There is no tie that's not close. God has clearly told us in His Word there is a first commandment. There is a commandment higher than the rest. And it is love. And whether that sounds wimpish, whether that sounds sissified or not, true men of God, men of God that would fit in Hebrews chapter 11, along with David, Gideon, Jephthah, and the other heroes that are mentioned there, will be known first for their brotherly love. Brotherly love is superior to anything accomplished in Hebrews 11. Can I prove that? Everything accomplished in Hebrews 11 was accomplished by faith. Paul said, Now abideth faith, hope, charity, these three, but the greatest of these is charity. Now, if you believe the Word of God, what I'm saying is if you can love your brother properly, you can beat anyone in Hebrews chapter 11 as far as your testimony before Almighty God because God honors love above the accomplishments of faith in Hebrews chapter 11. But you know, there's part of us that would rather have Hebrews 11, wouldn't we? It's far more macho to be able to take a javelin and take care of two fornicating an Israelite and a Moabite in a tent like Phinehas did. Isn't it? But God exalts love above that. Let brotherly love continue. Paul doesn't get happy with very many churches and say, you don't have much to work on. Rest in peace until the Lord returns. Even if they're good churches, he encourages them to greater works. And let's think about the subject of love. Look over at Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1. Now the Philippian church, or that is that church that was in the city of Philippi, they were a church known for their love. They were a loving church. Paul thanked them in verses 4 and 5. In every prayer he was thanking and making requests with joy for their fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. Philippians 1.5. They had had brotherly affection for Paul. It's mentioned several times throughout this book. I've preached through this book before. Hopefully you remember that. But notice what he says in verse 9. And this I pray, that your love may abound yet more and more. He wasn't content that they had great love. He wasn't content that they were the example church for love toward him. He mentions it in chapter 4. He says, I'm still praying that your love will abound more and more. He wanted this church to increase in love. Look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. The church at Thessalonica was a great church, a church filled with much love. Look at Paul in chapter 1 and verse 3. He said of this church, remembering without ceasing your work of faith and and labor of love. He remembered without ceasing the fact that this church was a church of love. But look at chapter 3 and verse 12. This is his prayer. And the Lord make you to increase 
and abound in love one toward another and toward all men, even as we do toward you. Notice Paul prays for it to increase and abound. Look at chapter 4, verse 9. Chapter 4, verse 9, Paul said of this church, but as touching brotherly love, ye need not that I write unto you, for ye yourselves are taught of God to love one another. The elementary basics of love, they had it down. They were practicing it. It was a church filled with love. But he said in verse 10, And indeed ye do it toward all the brethren which are in all Macedonia, why their love extended beyond even their own congregation. But we beseech you, brethren, that ye increase more and more. Paul wasn't content with a church's love. And I'm not content with the brotherly love of this church Paul is my pattern. I'll preach love until I fall into a casket one day because it is the greatest requirement that God has given to His churches and that is to love one another. It was a year ago, brethren, a little over a year ago, 13 months ago, I preached four messages entitled Love is the Greatest. I'd like to preach them again this morning. But those four sermons took six hours. Would you like me to preach them this morning? Don't stand and stone them. I'm going to summarize it. I want to summarize that love is the greatest. Knowledge is not the greatest. God doesn't care if you know that He's predestinated His children to be heirs of eternal life if you don't love. On a relative scale between the two, He'd much rather see your love than your knowledge. In fact, the two were antithetical to each other. Knowledge puffeth up. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, but charity edifieth. I've made the point many times before I want to protect this church from excessive pride and puffing because of knowledge. We want to put our emphasis where the Bible puts our emphasis, and that's in charity. Love is the greatest. Can I prove that with the Bible? You say, but all it says is love is the greatest. It's the greatest what? Well, you name it, it's the greatest. You say anything, it's the greatest duty. It's the greatest means of benefits. It's the greatest blessing. It's the greatest grace. Remember all those points I made? It is the greatest. And I want to show you that by way of reminding you this morning. Look at Mark chapter 12. We're going to be flipping some pages. God taught us to study that way, and we'll continue to do so. I want you to see that love is, first of all, the greatest duty that God has given us. Mark chapter 12 and verse 29, Jesus said, The first of all the commandments is, and here it is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, now, we love that phrase, don't we? We love to glory in the fact that our God is one Lord. But it doesn't end there. And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind and with all thy strength. This is the first commandment. And the second is like, namely this, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. There is none other commandment greater than these. Love is the greatest. To love your neighbor as yourself is the greatest human duty you have. 
toward God comes before that. But as far as relating to other people, it's to love them is the greatest duty God has given us. Look at James chapter 2. James chapter 2 and verse 8. Let me read it to you. The apostle writes, If ye fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, ye do well. You want to do well in your life? Love your neighbor as yourself. And what does God call that law? It is the royal law. It is the greatest of the commandments. Love is not only the greatest duty, it is the greatest grace that God has worked in our lives. If there was one thing we were not capable of before God gave us a new heart, it was properly loving one another. Look at John chapter 8 and verse 44. Jesus speaking to the Pharisees and Jews of His day. He said in John 8:44, Ye are of your father the devil, and the lusts of your father ye will do. He was a murderer from the beginning, and abode not in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he is a liar, and the father of it. The devil was a murderer from the beginning, and by nature we are the children of the devil. By nature, we live like the devil. We think like the devil. We are murderers because we're filled with lies and hatred. That is what we are by nature. Look at Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. And you hath he quickened, beginning at verse 1, who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past ye walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. We walked in this world like the devil wanted us to walk. We walked in this world like the devil himself walks. And how does he walk? He walks as a murderer because he is a hater. Hatred is from the devil. When it is not hatred motivated by godly principles, there is definitely such a thing as righteous hatred because God is filled with that glorious attribute. But I'm talking about hating one another, which we do so well by nature, because we walked according to the prince of the power of the air, the devil himself, that great murderer. Look at the book of Titus. Titus chapter 3. You say we're covering a lot, an awful lot of Scripture. Well, Paul didn't put it all in Hebrews 13. Do you know what he said in Hebrews 13? Let brotherly love continue. Where are we to go for the rest of the Bible's teaching about love? Everywhere else. Where it deals with the subject of love. Here a little, there a little. Here a little, there a little. Don't let it get tedious, brethren. If it gets tedious, you're falling into the wrong category. God wrote His book to be studied here a little and there a little, precept upon precept, line upon line, and we're going to line out a few things this morning. Titus chapter 3 and verse 3 describes our state by nature. For we, Paul says this of himself along with Titus, for we ourselves also were sometimes foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving divers' lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. 
That is what we were by nature. We were haters, filled with hate, filled with malice, which is malicious. You know, we get the word malicious from the word malice. It's malicious feelings and sentiments toward another. That's what we were by nature, filled with hate. Therefore, I say love is the greatest grace. Because for God to take men who were murderers, who walked according to the course of the great murderer, who were hateful and hating one another, and to make them love one another is quite a transformation. Love is the greatest grace that can be evident in a child of God's life. Look at 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3, let's move to a third point. Love is the greatest evidence. How many times do we ask ourselves and how many times have I heard, how can I know I'm a child of God? How can I know I'm one of God's elect? How can I know my name is written in the book of life? How can I know I've been born again? Well, it's all wrapped up in the greatest. In love. 1 John chapter 3. I'd like to read verses 10 through 19. In this, the children of God are manifest. You want to know a child of God? He's going to tell you how. And the children of the devil, whosoever doeth not righteousness is not of God, neither he that loveth not his brother. You want to show yourself a child of God and not a child of the devil? Then love your brother. Verse 11, For this is the message that ye heard from the beginning. What did Jesus Christ teach from the beginning? That we should love one another. Not as Cain, who was of that wicked one, who was a child of the devil, and slew his brother. And wherefore slew he him? Because his own works were evil and his brother's righteous. Marvel not, my brethren, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death unto life because we love the brethren. He that loveth not his brother abideth in death. How do you know you're born again? What's the greatest evidence of a child of God? That you love one another. Because you would not do it if it were not for a principle of righteousness being placed in you by God Himself. Verse 15, Whosoever hateth his brother is a murderer. And ye know that no murderer hath eternal life abiding in him. Hereby perceive we the love of God because He laid down His life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoso hath this world's good and seeth his brother have need and shutteth up his bowels of compassion from him, how dwelleth the love of God in him? My little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in word, in deed and in truth. And hereby we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. How can you assure your heart that you are of the truth? It is not quoting Romans 9 through 11, verse for verse. The devil can quote it. But I'll tell you one thing he can't do. He can't love. He is a murderer. He was a murderer. And he'll ever be a murderer. Love is how we assure our hearts and how we know we have passed from death unto life. You see, I thought it was faith. I thought that believing in the Lord Jesus Christ was evidence that one had passed from death into life. Oh, it's a pitiful evidence. Why do you say that? Because the devils can do that. 
The Bible tells us the devils believe and tremble. When Jesus Christ appeared in the scene, the devils often fell down at his feet and worshipped him as the Holy One of God and asked him if he was come to torment them before their time. But try to fake love. Over time, try to lay down your life for your brother and fake that. If you'd love indeed and in truth, it's impossible to fake it. Because if you're doing it, you're loving. If you're loving indeed and in truth. Now, if you're loving in word only, anyone can fake that. But indeed and in truth, faith and, and love that works, the labor of love, as Paul already mentioned in the book of Thessalonians. Look at chapter 4 here. Love is the greatest evidence. Verse 7, Beloved, let us love one another. For love is of God, and everyone that loveth is born of God, and knoweth God. He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. In this was manifested the love of God toward us, because that God sent His only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through Him. Herein is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us, and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. No man hath seen God at any time. If we love one another, God dwelleth in us, and His love is perfected in us. You can't see God enter into me. I can't see God enter into you. In fact, I haven't looked in a mirror to see Him enter into me. The only way I can know that God is in me is to give off, to show that great attribute of His, that God is love, that is so contrary to my natural nature that it's evident God must be in me. Love is the greatest evidence. Look at verse 20 of that same fourth chapter. If a man say, I love God. How many times have people stood in churches and sang, Oh, how I love Jesus. Oh, how I love Jesus. This is what the apostles referring to here. If a man say, I love God, and hateth his brother, he is a liar. For he that loveth not his brother whom he hath seen, how can he love God whom he hath not seen? And this commandment have we from him, that he who loveth God love his brother also. And then look at verse 1 of the 5th chapter. Whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ is born of God indeed, that is an evidence of eternal life, if it has works following, and what is the work that follows? And every one that loveth him that begat loveth him also that is begotten of him. Love is the greatest evidence of eternal life. Don't you want to know what you can do to make sure you're a child of God? Second Peter chapter 1, that chapter where eight things are listed describing how we make our calling and election sure. Guess what? Charity is one of the eight. Brotherly kindness is another one of the eight. How we treat our brothers is the greatest evidence of eternal life. Look at John chapter 13. Let's move to another point. Love is the greatest measure of a man. You want to measure yourself as to how God measures you? What makes you a special man, a unique man, a man that God loves and appreciates and respects and rewards and blesses? Love is the greatest measure of accomplishing the will of God and pleasing Him. John 13, verse 34, A new commandment I give unto you, that ye love one another, 
As I have loved you, that ye also love one another. By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have love one to another. What is the measure of a true disciple of Jesus Christ? Their love of one another is the measure of a child of God, is a measure of the disciples of Christ. We don't measure it by knowledge. Knowledge can be held by any reprobate. Why, the Bible tells us the whole world holds the truth in unrighteousness. Romans chapter 1, go read it. But who can hold the truth and bring forth what the truth teaches? That makes all the difference in the world. Anyone can believe and hold factual information and believe that it's true. The devils believe it. But when the Bible talks about faith, remember, faith without works is dead. The Bible never speaks of belief in a vacuum. Belief always works. Belief results in something. And the measure that God gives us is that love is the greatest measure. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. I remember hearing a number of comments from several of you about a point that I drew from these verses that I'm about to make again on the importance of love as a measure of a man, the measure of a woman. My parents spent the 30 years of their first 30 years of their married life together in the ministry. They're no longer in the ministry. And I remember when they heard a particular tape where I made this point, how much comfort they derived from this point. And I hope all of you will get some comfort from it also. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 28. And God hath set some in the church, first apostles, secondarily prophets, thirdly teachers, after that miracles, then gifts of healings, helps, governments, diversities of tongues. In this 28th verse, God does a, us a great favor. He ranks all spiritual gifts. He ranks them from first or most important to last or least important. The most important gift God ever gave the church were the apostles. Why, they're, in, they're considered the foundation of the church right along with the Lord Jesus Christ, He being the chief cornerstone. The greatest gift is the apostles. God set them first in the church. Second were the prophets. Third are pastors and teachers, those who have the position and responsibility of instructing God's people. After that come miracles. Listen, working a miracle is not as important as a preacher. Any preacher who gives up preaching time to do a miracle is wasting time. Because if he was preaching, he'd be doing something more important than miracle working. And from there, it declines down the list. After that, miracles, then gifts of healings. If you heal somebody, that's not as valuable. We don't believe in healing today, but if the apostles, even in Paul's day, remember who's writing here, Paul is addressing the church at Corinth that was filled with spiritual gifts. If you had the gift of healing in the church at Corinth, it was not as important as miracles, which wasn't as important as teaching, which wasn't as important as being a prophet, which wasn't as important as being me, Paul's saying. 
because I was an apostle. Then helps, then governments, and last of all, the least of all the gifts, was speaking in tongues. Now he asked this question, are all apostles? How many apostles did God ever give the church? A few. You say, wasn't it 12? No, it was more than 12. Because God made some men in addition to the original 12 apostles. Remember, Judas lost his. Matthias took his place. Then Paul was made an apostle. Barnabas was made an apostle. There's 15 or 16 mentioned in the Word of God. Are all apostles? No, a very limited number are apostles. But God knows that someone that He has regenerated and filled their heart with zeal to serve Him is going to desire spiritual gifts. And when He gives a ranking of the spiritual gifts, men are going to want to be as high up that list as possible. I mean, unless you're a total nincompoop when it comes to uh, any zeal or competitiveness. I mean, don't, isn't there within us we all want to be the best we can for God? Paul said it was that way for him. He wanted to run the race and win it. He said they all run in a race, but one wins the prize. We want to be the best. Well, God only made a limited number of apostles. Are all apostles? No, only about 15. Are all prophets? No, not many more than that. Are all teachers? No, not very many. And you can look in this congregation, how many are teachers? God's made a difference there in that gift. Are all workers of miracles? Have all the gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? He's dealing with these Corinthians who are all craving spiritual gifts in a day when the church was filled with spiritual gifts, including the gift of being an apostle. Have you ever wanted to be a teacher? Have you ever wanted to be a pastor? Listen, some of you women don't nod your heads, but you may think that inside. I wish I'd have been called to preach. That's okay if you have that desire to have done your best for God. But God didn't. The point I want you to get is contained in verse 31. Paul said, covet earnestly the best gifts. You know, the Bible says, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife, thy neighbor's house, thy neighbor's ass, his maidservant, his manservant. Yeah, there's a lot of things you're not to covet. But there are some things you're not only to covet, you're to covet them earnestly. You're to have a strong desire for spiritual gifts. God assumes that on the part of His saints. And then He encourages it. Covet earnestly the best gifts, which would mean start at the top. When the worst gift would be to covet tongues. Covet the best gifts. Start at the top of that list. Covet earnestly the best gifts. And listen to these words. And yet show I unto you a more excellent way. You want to measure yourself as a child of God? Certainly don't measure yourself by tongues. That's last. Don't measure yourself by miracles. That's in the middle. Don't measure yourself by being an apostle. Because Paul said... I'm going to show you a more excellent way. You mean, has God given a gift? And is there something we can do that is more excellent than being an apostle? You mean, I can be greater than Paul in his office of apostle? Absolutely. What is the more excellent way? 
Chapter 13, charity. Charity. Isn't that, isn't that wonderful? If I don't believe that. Surely an apostle is greater than someone who loves his brother. You love your brother the way the Bible teaches, and God said he's showed you a more excellent way of measurement. Verse 1 of chapter 13, Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, and have not charity, I am become a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. Did Paul speak in the different tongues of men? Did he speak in this language and that language as he went around the known world at that time preaching? Sure he did. But what if he did it without love? It's like a Chinese gong going off. Her cymbals clanging. It's nothing. It's a bunch of noise that's irritating to your nerves. Verse 2. What if there was a prophet? Remember, that's second in the list. What if there was a prophet that had the gift of prophecy and understood a few mysteries? Is that what it says? Understood all mysteries. What if there was a prophet that had the gift of prophecy and he understood all mysteries and he had all knowledge and, and he had all faith? Oh, that's quite a man, isn't it? All faith, all knowledge, all understanding, but he didn't know how to love. What is it worth? How would you measure him? On a scale of 0 to 100, how would you measure him? He's a big 0. He's a big 0. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, I'm a martyr for the faith, like Stephen. And I don't know how to love. It doesn't profit me a thing. I should have saved my life. We come to the last verse of this chapter and it says now abideth faith hope charity these three but the greatest of these is charity brethren love is the greatest measure of a man Colossians chapter 3 verse 14 tells us it is the bond of perfectness you want to be perfect then you've got to learn how to love love is the greatest measure love is the greatest means for securing God's blessing and accomplishing good in our lives. Look at 1 Corinthians 16. You're close to it. 1 Corinthians 16 and verse 14. Love is the greatest means of accomplishing some good in our lives. This short verse tells us, let all your things be done with charity. Because if you don't do them with charity, they're not worth anything. Love is the greatest means to making your actions in this world profitable to your account. You've got to learn how to love. And you've got to do it. Look at 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 8. We've been working Paul over well on what he had to say about love. Look at Peter in 1 Peter 4, 8. And above most things, have fervent charity among yourselves. Does your Bible read that way? And above all things, have fervent charity among yourselves, for charity shall cover the multitude of sins. Use hospitality one to another without grudging, which gets us into verse 2 of Hebrews 13. Love is the greatest means of blessing the things that you do and of blessing other men. Charity is the means by which we are able to cover sins. Love is the greatest source of God's blessing. Look at Proverbs chapter 15. 
Proverbs chapter 15. I don't care if you men work so hard to get a Fleetwood Brougham in your garage and you've got the new 35-inch Mitsubishi in a corner of your family room. That isn't going to make you great. Isn't going to give you a happy life if you don't have love. Proverbs 15:17 tells us, Better is a dinner of dandelion greens where love is than filet mignon and hatred therewith. Better is a dinner of herbs where love is than a stalled ox and hatred therewith. Love is the greatest source of blessing and happiness for our lives if we learn how to love. Love is the greatest. It's greater than faith and hope. And if we learn how to love right, while we can sit down to a plate full of dandelion greens and be happy and content, and if we're loving those around the table, who cares what we're eating? But who wants some fillets sitting in front of you if there's hatred, envy, strife there? I mean, it turns your stomach upside down, you walk away and you get indigestion. And you eat dandelion greens and you walk away and you feel great. What's the difference? Love. Look at 1 Peter chapter 3. You say, why do you keep going here and there? Well, I'll remind you again, here a little and there a little. 1 Peter chapter 3. You say, don't you wish God put it all in one place? Sort of. I'm careful. I, I, I'm careful saying that. But it'd be nice if it was all listed in one place, but I know that he had greater wisdom in it than I have. And he wrote it this way because most people have missed all that the Bible has to say about love because they don't have the time nor the desire to look up all the references. First Peter chapter 3 and verse 8, finally, be ye all of one mind, having compassion one of another. Love as brethren. Be pitiful. Be courteous. Not rendering evil for evil or railing for railing, but contrary-wise, blessing, knowing that ye are thereunto called, that ye should inherit a blessing. My point is, love is the greatest source of blessing. For he that will love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips that they speak no guile. Let him eschew evil and do good. Let him seek peace and ensue it. Brethren, do you want to have a good life that you love and see happy days? Then love your brethren. Be compassionate. Be courteous toward one another and it will give you a good life that is the promise of God that is thus saith the Lord you want to be sick drying up inside not loving life but fearful of life hating life not seeing happy days then don't learn how to love you'll miss it this isn't my idea for having a happy life this is God's promise of having a happy life Love is the greatest source of blessings. Look at 1 John, a few pages to the right. 1 John chapter 4. There are so many men filled with fear. Fear brings torment, but love is a great source of comfort and peace. 1 John 4, 17, Herein is our love made perfect, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as He is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love. But perfect love casteth out fear, because fear hath torment. He that feareth is not made perfect in love. 
If you are afraid of other people, that they are out to get you, that they are going to hurt you, then you, you have torment in your life. But he that has love has no torment, because love casts out that fear of others. You're not worried all the time about what they're going to do to you, because you love them, and love thinketh no evil. Love beareth all things, and so forth, from 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Love's the greatest concept. You know when the Bible says, do unto others as you would have them do unto you, what is Jesus teaching there? In other words, he's teaching, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Because he said, after saying, do unto others as you would have them do unto you, that on that statement hung all the law and the prophets. Every commandment's contained in that. And where, what other commandment contains all the rest? Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. It's the greatest concept of all to treat others as you would have yourself to be treated. No one's ever come up with a one-sentence description that would make this world a utopia but the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And that's it. To treat others as you would have to be treated. Oh, we quote that, we say it, we memorize it as a child, but how often do we practice it? Do you actually treat the other brothers in this congregation just the way you would want to be treated? Do you ask questions of them just the way you would want them to ask questions of you? Do you correct their mistakes just the way you want to be corrected? Do you show acts of kindness to them just the way you want to have acts of kindness shown to you? Are you as fervent in your hospitality in just the way you want them to be fervent toward you? What a concept. What a concept. And I'm not going to go to 1 Corinthians 13 because we recently studied it when we looked at how a husband should love his wife. But remember those 15 short little phrases that describe love? That is the greatest concept in this world. When you look at those 15 different aspects of Bible love. But brethren, love is going to be the greatest work. It's most contrary to your nature and it is going to take work to love one another properly. One problem people have is, well, I can do most of what the Bible says that's involved in love, but I just don't have the feelings there. I don't want to do it. Well, you know what the Bible tells you? Get the feelings. Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. The Bible doesn't use the word feelings as often as we use it, nor always in the same way that we use it. The Bible has another word to describe your stomach turning upside down with the terrific thought of doing something nice for someone. We call that feeling today. What does the Bible call it? Your bowels are moved for someone. I'm going to get to that this evening on marriage. That, it's amazing how, you know, verse 4, marriage is honorable and all in the bed undefiled. Can you believe that? I didn't plan that. That's going to tie into our preaching on marriage so well. But here we are on love. Bowels describe that feeling. You know, we've often talked about, oh, when he touched me, I just got that sick feeling in the pit of my stomach. Is that a scriptural concept? Called bowels. It's all through the Old Testament. When Joseph was sitting on his throne and his brothers are standing before him and little Benjamin is there, his blood brother, it says his bowels yearned upon him. He had to send everyone out of the room, go into the bathroom and bawl. His, his stomach was just tightened up because there was his brother, little brother Benji, came to see him. The Bible talks about bowels 
You know, we get so hard sometimes we want to relegate feelings to the closet. God exalted feelings. They're a very valuable thing to have. So valuable God tells us to get them. Look at Colossians 3 and verse 12. Put on, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercies. Now, God didn't say, put on mercy. He said, put on bowels of mercies. Kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another and forgiving one another if any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. And above all these things, put on charity, which is the bond of perfectness. Bowels of mercy, compassion, and long-suffering. And then to summarize it all, and above all that, get charity. But notice the attachment to bowels, the actual feelings of charity. You say, how do you get the feelings? You do. You do the action. And I'm going to get to this again this evening, that God requires in love, and the bowels of love will follow. Love is an investment in another person. And the more you invest in another person, your time, your thoughts, your consideration, your acts of kindness, you'll get bowels for them. It will work. The more you invest in a thing, where you put your heart. Remember how the Lord said one time, lay it up for yourselves treasures upon earth, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be. What is heart describing? Affections, brethren. Heart describes affection. Well, where's your treasure? You, my point tonight, one of the points tonight will be the couple walks into the pastor's office or into a marriage counselor's office and they sit down and they say, Pastor, we just don't love each other anymore. What do we do with our marriage? And listen, probably all of you have been there before and asked yourself that question. Why don't I have the feelings and the bowels and the love and the compassion that I used to have for my partner? I can tell that they've waned since the day I married her or sometime after that or sometime before that. I just don't love her like I used to. I'm going to go after that myth of marriage. There's two aspects of that myth. First of all, that you've got to have those feelings to be a good husband and wife. And second of all, that you can't get them if you don't have them. We don't believe in love nor bowels that you sit around waiting for them to hit you out of the clear blue sky. We believe in bowels of feeling toward others that you put on. And you put them on by making that person your treasure. Because if you will make someone or something your treasure, your heart will follow. And the heart is the seat of your affection and feelings. And your bowels will be there. Put it on. Love is the greatest work. I'm talking about something. <laughs> you don't have all the feeling there, but you go do it anyway with the hope of God's promise that the bowels and feelings will follow. you got to do it. Love is the greatest work. How well do you love this morning? Since we've just finished a year, let me ask you some questions with some verses and ask yourself, how would God rate you over the last year, 1988, relative to your brotherly love? 
to save time, I'll maybe just quote the verses. Proverbs 18:24 says, A man that hath friends must show himself friendly. John 15:13 tells us that greater love hath no man than he lay down his life for his friends. Friendship and love go hand in hand. How many close friends do you have in the church? How many close friends do you have in this church? I'll protect you on one hand by saying no one can be close friends with everyone because close friendship takes time. But how many close friends do you have in this congregation? And by close, I mean who know you intimately. You share things with them that you wouldn't and haven't had an opportunity to share with others. You've invested great time. You have a treasure there and you have bowels there. If you don't have bowels, you haven't got a close friend yet. How many? Love will win close friends. How well do others know you and your situation? Jesus Christ said, I call to his disciples, he said, I call you my friends because I've told you everything my father told me. I'm not going to call you servants any longer. Friendship is defined by God himself at telling somebody everything within, you know, limits that are obvious. But most people don't have anything that would be outside those limits. Love communicates. How many and how well do others know you? Rank yourself over 1988 and at this present moment in the sight of God. How well do others know you and your situation, your fears, your failures, your problems, your dreams. How zealous and careful were you to meet brethren whenever possible this past year? We had a brother moving into town. Were you there to meet with the brethren? David Johnson was here for an interview with Michelin Tire Corporation. Were you there for lunch? We have a social on Friday evening. Were you there? Some of the men go shooting. They invited you. Did you try to muster an interest in shooting? <laughs> when you had opportunity, did you make efforts and pains to be there with other brethren? If you didn't want to be there, then it's an obvious statement. You don't have an interest in them. You're not investing any time there, and you don't love as you should. I said... How zealous and careful when possible. I'm not talking about when it's impossible. How many times last year did you initiate action to help someone else in this congregation? I'm not talking about when they asked you. That's cheating. Love is kind. That means you do it yourself. How many times this past year did you initiate action to go help someone else? That's love. How many times did you rebuke or warn another member in this congregation last year? And rebuking and warning doesn't mean you sit at home and criticize them with your family. Rebuking and warning means going and telling him his fault between thee and him alone. I know you're all good at sitting home and criticizing because that's being hateful and hating one another. But how many of you singled out a brother or a sister and went to them and said, you have offended me in this matter. You are sinning in this matter. I want to bring it to your attention. 
You say, I didn't see any last year. <laughs> We've got something more basic than a lack of love in this congregation. We've got a lack of sight. There's always going to be opportunity for that. How many persons did you embrace and or kiss during the last year? You say, do you have to embrace or kiss over the last year to love? Well, I wonder why Paul and Peter five times said that we ought to greet one another with a holy kiss or a kiss of... Peter calls it a kiss of... charity. Kiss of charity. 1 Peter 5.14 The Bible's filled with it. Jesus did it. The disciples did it. The Church of the New Testament did it. The Old Testament's filled with it. How many persons did you embrace and or kiss during the last year? You know, if you told me you hadn't kissed your wife all year, what would we assume? You had major problems. Major problems. How many personal offenses did you gloriously overlook through love? How many times were you offended this year and you gloriously overlooked it through love? You say, there were lots of times people offended me and I didn't go and say anything to them. Yeah, most of the time because you're a big chicken. Most of the time because you're a sinner and you'd rather sit at home and just beat them up with your mouth behind their back. I'm talking about gloriously overlooking a fault, not saying anything about it simply because you love them. And the Bible says if you love someone, you'll defer your anger and gloriously overlook their imperfection. How many times did you do that? How would your love rate over the last year by your care of the uncomely members? The Bible says that every church has uncomely members, members that haven't been gifted as much. They may not have as much in the way of financial resources. They may not have as much in the way of intelligence, looks, spiritual gifts. They're uncomely. If your love were measured over the past year by your care of them, how would it measure? How many specific occasions did you take the time to rejoice or weep with another? The Bible says rejoice with them that do rejoice and weep with them that weep. How many times did you cry this year with someone else who cried? We had several deaths this year of distant, more distant family members, no one in the church. How many times did you weep with others that were weeping? We had several families that had difficulty this year. How many times have you wept with those who wept? How many times did you celebrate with those who were honored, rejoice with those that do rejoice? Did you specifically go and rejoice with the brother who had something to rejoice concerning? Did you do it? If you didn't do it, then you haven't done what God said is involved in love. How strong or how strongly do your actions show Solomon's teaching regarding human society? Solomon said two are better than one. Or do your actions, and have they shown, I am a rock, I am an island? And you prefer Art Garfunkel and Paul Simon to Solomon. Your actions, the, time, the amount of time you spend after the service, the conversations you initiate with others, the people you call during the week, the things you do with other brethren during the week, 
Do they show a confidence and belief in what Solomon said, that two are better than one? Or do they show an aloofness and a loneliness? And you're a shell, you're a turtle. You withdraw into your shell unless someone comes and pulls you out with a fish hook. What do you show? How strong is your love as measured by the kindest deed you did last year? What's the kindest thing you did all year? Think about it. Don't just let me ask questions. Think about it in your minds. What's the kindest thing you did to some brother last year? Well, I greeted him when he came in this morning. Well, bless your heart. What kind of love is that? What's the kindest thing you did for another brother? How many times over this past year did you were you in the presence of a brother who was backbiting another and you shut him up either with an angry look, which is what the Bible teaches, or by rebuking him, thereby, thereby defending your brother? Did you show your love by defending your brother at any time this past year when someone else was backbiting him? How does your love measure if we were to compare it to the Word of God? Love is the greatest measure of a man. It's the greatest grace. It's the greatest duty. It's the greatest source of blessing. Is this church looking for blessing in 1989? Then we must love one another. Look at Hebrews chapter 13. Peter said, Above all things, put on charity. Paul said it's the greatest. And he said here, Let brotherly love continue. I don't want it to just continue. I want it to increase and abound yet more and more as Paul wrote in several other places. What's a good way to show brotherly love? Verse 2 will tell you, Be not forgetful to entertain strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Can you think of any men in the Word of God who entertained angels? When men came to their door, they fixed meals for them. I mean, they scurried around you out of read how quickly they went to great pains to provide a a nice meal and lodging. Abraham did it, Genesis chapter 18. Lot did it, Genesis chapter 19. Two men came to the city of Sodom and Gomorrah. I can believe that angels probably looked rather important, especially when they were coming on a message of destruction. Lot took them into his house, tried to make the best accommodations for them that he could and to protect them from the evil pursuits of the wicked fags of his city. And he entertained angels unawares. Be not forgetful to entertain strangers. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 10. Deuteronomy 10, God takes care of strangers. And God wants you to take care of them also. You know, we, we've read the Bible enough to know that God expects us to show extra mercy toward widows and orphans. Some of you have purchased cars and other things from widows before, and we've talked about it. You don't Jew a widow down like you might try another man. You show some mercy toward a widow woman. We take care of widows and orphans as we have opportunity. Like Mrs. Webb, we are taking great pains to make sure she is provided for because she's a widow, but God also includes strangers. He says in verse 16 of Deuteronomy 10, Circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart, and be no more stiff-necked. 
For the Lord your God is God of gods, and Lord of lords, a great God, a mighty and a terrible, which regardeth not persons nor taketh reward. He doth execute the judgment of the fatherless and widow, and loveth the stranger in giving him food and raiment. God loves strangers. Do you entertain strangers? When we have visitors to our congregation that you do not know very well, are you zealous at pursuing them and providing them lodging in your home, food, if they need it? Do you show zeal that way in lodging those that you do not know very well, strangers? If someone were to come to your door and ask for food, would you give it to them? Would you provide for them? The stranger. You don't know his situation yet. If he's able-bodied and he comes back the third day, give him a shovel and tell him you need a hole 40 feet by 40 feet, 10 feet deep in your backyard and then give him his meal. Because the Bible says if you haven't worked, you don't deserve to eat. But when a stranger comes, you don't know his situation yet. Most strangers don't come to the door with a sign saying, I'm a bum that doesn't like to work. Please feed me. You assume that he is not. That's showing charity. Charity believeth all things. If he looks able-bodied to you, it hopes all things. And you feed him the meal. And God will respect what you did through charity. You know, if you give your goods and you don't give it through charity, it profits you nothing. But not only is hospitality to be shown toward strangers, it's to be shown toward the brethren. Romans chapter 12 tells the saints, remember that's the chapter that says, I beseech you therefore. Well, how did, what did Paul beseech them to do? Be given to hospitality. Be given to hospitality. Some of you don't need to hear what I'm saying hardly on hospitality. You're given to it. But to be given to hospitality means to be under its power. The Bible talks about being given to wine. That means you're an alcoholic. Well, when it comes to hospitality, be given to it. Be under its control. You're doing it all the time. You need to do it. You feel uncomfortable when you haven't had someone in your home for a while. Be given to hospitality. Romans chapter 12 teaches us that in verse 13. 1 Peter chapter 4 tells us that charity will show hospitality without grudging. Do you ever grudge when you show hospitality? Do you show it and then say, that's the second time I've had that person over and they haven't had me over in a year. I'm sorry. My heart's pumping peanut butter right now at 80 beats a minute for you. God never said show hospitality in order for it to be returned to you. God said to be given to it and to do it without grudging. If there's an opportunity to show hospitality for the third time before they've invited you over, show it again. Because it's a commandment from God. Are you given to hospitality? Now, I can answer that question for all of you families if, we were to, if I was to stand you up one by one. And I've got two more questions following this one. Are you given to hospitality? All of you families have to answer one of th these three questions, yes. Are you given to hospitality? 
Or do you give to hospitality? That means you do it once in a while because it's expected and the pastor preaches on it all the time. Now, if you're given to it, you're addicted to showing hospitality. If you give to it, why well, you do it once in a while because you have to? Or are you only given it? There are some people in this church that only take hospitality. They don't show it. They're fruitless trees when it comes to brotherly love. Are you given to hospitality? Have you given to it? Or must it be given to you? One of three choices. Where do you fall? We have a family that's not here this morning that has to drive several hours to be here on Sundays. I expect and assume, and so does God, that I never have to worry about a place to lodge between services. That would be absurd. That, that would be ridiculous. You say, but I don't know them very well. Thank you for saying that. Be not forgetful to entertain strangers. Thank you. Get to know them. Get to know them. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6. Some of you God has blessed with greater riches than others. Some of you have a larger grocery budget than others. Some of you have a larger dining room table than others. You have the means to be more hospitable than others. Guess what God expects? Do you need help? Or is it a rhetorical question? 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17, Charge them that are rich in this world. And I'm charging. Some of you have been given greater riches than others, that they be not high-minded, nor trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God, who giveth us richly all things to enjoy, that they do good, that they be rich in good works, ready to distribute, willing to communicate, laying up in store for themselves a good foundation against the time to come that they may lay hold on eternal life. If God's blessed you richly, then you are to be rich in the way you distribute some of that to others. Your willingness to communicate. Your willingness that your things are their things if they have need of it. That is brotherly love. Some of you are in that category of having a greater burden to it than others may. Regarding hospitality, are you zealous of it? Are you mindful of it that you need to do better? Or are you forgetful? Or are you plain rebellious? Hospi Christians living and eating and communing together in their homes is what this church is all about. If it wasn't for brotherly love and fellowship among the saints and hospitality, Listen, I could sit at home and send you a tape and it'd be more effective. <coughs> Let brotherly love continue. Be not forgetful to entertain strangers. For some have entertained angels unawares. Paul goes on to say, Remember them that are in bonds as bound with them. And them which suffer adversity as being yourselves also in the body. How well do you remember your brethren? We have two men that are very lonely right now, who have experienced some rather traumatic events over the last couple of years in their lives. Do you remember them or do you forget them? 
The Hebrews had some of their members in jail. And Paul said, remember them that are in bonds. You know, it'd be easy when a church member's in jail to eventually forget about it. I mean, when you were in jail back then, you didn't call them on the telephone once a week. Nor did you fly to see them all that easily. Did you remember those that were in bonds? Now, we don't have anyone in bonds in this congregation, but do we have any suffering adversity? Do we have any members suffering adversity? Or is it just peachy in the Greenville Church with all the members? We have some suffering adversity. Do you remember them? Do you call them up from time to time and let them know that you're thinking of them? And any woman that's saying, but they're two men, they need to hear from you more. It'd be comforting to hear from a sister that commiserates with their pain. Look at Matthew 25. Matthew chapter 25. There's a day when all those that remember will be remembered. Matthew chapter 25. Jesus Christ will one day put His saints on His right hand and the reprobates in His left hand. Those in His right will enter into eternal bliss. Those in His left will enter eternal damnation. And He's going to say to those on His right, verse 35, I was in hungry, and you gave me meat. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. Naked, and ye clothed me. I was sick, and ye visited me. I was in prison, and ye came unto me. And the righteous are going to say, Lord, when did we ever see you in prison? When did we ever see you hungry? And he's going to say, insomuch that ye did it unto one of the least of these, my brethren, you have done it unto me. Notice it's not just visiting them in prison. It's taking them in when they're strangers. It's visiting them when they're sick. It's providing food for them if they need it and showing hospitality even when they don't need it. The Bible tells us to rejoice with them that rejoice and to weep with them that weep. Are you a weeper with those that weep or do you forget about everyone else's troubles and just bury yourself in your own? You poor little thing. The Bible tells us to consider the things of others more than our own things. Forget your problems. You know the easiest way to forget your problems and to realize they're not that big? is to go dig into someone else's. Because they're new, because they're different, and by investing treasure in that person, your, your problems will fade into the background. You'll feel, yes, I mean that, you'll feel better for doing it. By investing in someone else, weeping when they're weeping, rejoicing when they're rejoicing. The rejoicing will affect you because you're rejoicing with God's blessing in another man's life. Are you going to suffer loss if you give of your food and your time to others? It's God, brethren, that's given you richly all things to enjoy. And He's the one that holds the purse strings. If you will share of that with others, He will return it to you many fold. There is that scattereth. How many times do I quote this verse? I love it. You'll never learn this in Economics 101. There is that scattereth, yet it tendeth to increase. There is that withholdeth more than is meet, 
and it tendeth to poverty. You show me one who's always worried about saving and doesn't have enough room in their budget for someone else, they will be in poverty. You show me someone that takes some of their money and just throws it to the wind. I mean, they want everybody over. They want to open their house up. It tends to increase. That's the book of Proverbs. Cast your bread upon the waters, you'll find it after many days, Solomon wrote in the book of Ecclesiastes. In Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 34, Paul commends the Hebrews for having taken care of him when he was in prison. He said in Hebrews 10:34, For ye had compassion of me and my bonds, and took joyfully the spoiling of your goods. How could they do that? Knowing in yourselves that ye have in heaven a better and an enduring substance. How do you put your treasure in heaven? By giving away what you've got down here. You got a life down here? Give it away. That means you're putting confidence in your life in heaven. You got money down here? Give it away. He'll take care of your goods in heaven. You've got an enduring substance in heaven, and it's a better substance than anything you can imagine down here. Brethren, this life is not where it's at. It's an eternal glory. And the appeal by Paul is to that, that they, those Hebrews understood it, and they had taken care of him in prison. Let brotherly love continue. We stand at the beginning of a new year. Can 1989 be a year in which we as a church increase and abound in brotherly love? May God bless us to that end. It is the greatest measure of God's blessing in this church. It is the greatest source of future blessing in this church. All the rules on how to love, we've been over it before. If you need to be reminded, go back and get some of the outlines or tapes on 1 Corinthians 13, where we reviewed in detail those 15 aspects of godly love, where God specifically defined what love is. Love suffereth long and is kind, and so forth all the way down to beareth all things, endureth all things. May God bless us to increase and continue in brotherly love.